The Tom Woods Show, episode 1660. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, by now you've probably noticed that news about the virus is almost always fact-free hysteria these days. So you need my brand new free ebook, Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About the Lockdown. Go pick it up at wrongaboutlockdown.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. We're joined today once again by our old friend Gene Epstein, formerly economics and book review editor at Barron's, now director of the Heroic Soho Forum, the greatest debate series of all time. And Gene and I are just going to have a phone conversation, and you folks are going to listen in. That's pretty much how this episode's going to go. Welcome back, Gene. It's uh, it's nice to be back, uh, Tom, but of course, as they say at funerals, sorry to be uh, meeting with you or talking with you under these circumstances. Indeed. And I feel especially sorry for you because (laughs) things are gradually, but very, very gradually returning to normal in some places. My state of Florida has lagged behind a little bit, Mm -hmm. a state like Georgia. I visited Texas about a week and a half ago. And there, yeah, I mean, there were still a lot of things closed. I mean, so the idea that they're just recklessly reopening is not true at all. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. but yeah. but I've still been able to go out and eat in restaurants and and have a lot of enjoyable experiences. And I'm going to be spending this week at various uh, Florida beach locations. Even though the weather the early part of the week is going to be so great, doesn't matter. I've reserved such nice places; it won't even matter. We're going to visit Tom DiLorenzo and have dinner with him tonight. So oh, I'm hey, sorry, you, Gene. Yeah, wow. Well, you you can go. I, I mean, I've been you know just hearing you know rumors and reading little snippets from Twitter about your various peregrinations. Knowing, of course, let's anchor this again, Tom. I know you repeated that historic uh, lunch where I set you back uh, several smackers since you picked up the bill. And uh, it was on March 7th at the uh, the Five Napkin Burgers, and Jenna was there and my wife, Sako. And uh, you guys were off to see, I guess, was it? I think you were up to see the plague that goes wrong. I know, I know. We had seen other shows (laughs) during that trip, but yes, we were seeing my favorite. That's right, Tom. And it's a little joke I play on you. Your contra cruises, your interviews, there's always a little something that goes wrong. So you love that, but something was always going wrong. You had a little bit and you fix it. But so you're up to do that. And then you were talking about looking forward to a trip to Scotland, was it? Oh, yes, we were. Yeah, yeah. All right, sorry to... Sorry to, to uh, you know, I got you sad there, Tom, that, that you lost out on that one. That well, was, in fact, in fact, this very week, which we're talking, I'm supposed yeah. to be in Dubai right now. Oh, my God. Really? Wow. What, what, yeah. would, what would have happened uh, in Dubai for you? Just a oh, well, pleasure trip? Just, yeah. Well, pleasure trip. And yeah. um, she likes Iron Maiden. And they oh. were going to be performing there. And I thought, what would be cooler than seeing them in Dubai, for heaven's wow. sake? You know, like, like any old schmuck can take her to see see them, you know, down the street, but this is all woods here. Okay, Tom, see, even though, you know, you've extended this, uh, you know, here I am in the epicenter, uh, uh, coping with my solo forum that I want to reopen um, under the thumb of those two dictators, de Blasio and uh, Cuomo, and of course, your heart goes out to me, but then again, Tom, you know, despite the fact that you call yourself uh, the old man, I guess maybe that's because the daughters call you that, Tom, is that why you are you referring to yourself that way? <laughs> Not yet. Don't give them any ideas. <laughs> okay. okay. But, of course, I guess, uh, you know, then I must be ancient man. You should say hello, oh, ancient man. And uh, so, you know, I've had, I'm 
still alive at 75. I've had a lot of trips, you know. Been to, so I've been there, done that, and that's a bit of an exaggeration. But you have your whole life ahead of you, Tom, and, and so you've been denied that. And that, in fact, uh, goes, harkens back to that great statement you read from that woman who was about my age, you know, go live your life, which I uh, really thought was quite moving, that we're sacrificing the lives of those people under 70 to... Uh, to protect people like me as though people like me don't know how to protect ourselves. And so that's all very sad. And then uh, are you going, you, uh, I heard the other day from Mark Skousen that Freedom Fest is actually happening and that I guess you'd have to say, you know, if there's any city that would open up, it would be Las Vegas. I guess that is so dependent on uh, tourists. Freedom Fest is happening. Are you, are you you still going to speak out there? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I'm still going to yeah, speak. Yeah. I'm I'm not canceling anything. I don't have to cancel. Yeah. So I'm going to be at Pork Fest. I'm going to be at oh, Freedom wow. Fest, and we're going to have a great old time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I got the same email, and I also heard from Mark directly that yeah. they're going to have it at Caesar's Palace. Yeah. they got to keep the rooms to fifty percent capacity. But he says, look, we we'll always have a million rooms with a million events. No, none of them are ever at capacity. Yeah, because people are all spread out. Mm-hmm. So that's not going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. So I say it's about time we have something that just goes on. Now, the thing about Las Vegas, you're right. You would think there'd be a lot of eagerness to reopen. The mayor of Las Vegas is very enthusiastic about reopening, but the governor of Nevada is not so enthusiastic. So there's been a bit of a back and forth about that. And and plus, she made the mistake. She, the mayor, made the mistake. of of, It was uh, rather infelicitously worded, Mm -hmm. her statement. She said something like, well... Maybe Las Vegas can be an experiment to show people that if we reopen, everything will be fine. People are going, we don't want to be your crash test dummy or your guinea pig. What are you talking about? <laughs> it was not a very good way of putting it. Well, you know, it could, uh, you know it's this charming Las Vegas people putting their foot in it, but I take your point. You know, the, you've, been, uh, you know you've been doing some uh, heroic work uh, following this, uh, and uh, I really think it's been uh, outstanding following the facts and, and interviewing a lot of great people. Basically, when you interviewed Jeff Dice, who's actually he just surprised me. I'm going to get to that in a moment. I had the final chapter in the book that you've uh, your free ebook. Uh, I didn't know that he had it out. I wanted to mention that. But the way Jeff Dice put it, even even more precisely than Alex Epstein, who who also did a great interview with you, is that well, the way I put it is that the default position is freedom, the zero aggression principle. And if the government is going to commit this massive aggression against us, which I have called the great suppression, uh, and uh, parallel with you know the shun uh, words like great recession, great depression, then there's a very heavy burden of proof that any of this is necessary. Uh, and, and you know, and that's that's uh, that's of course you know splits the difference between rights and consequences. You know, you certainly have mostly agreed that you know we can't avoid being consequentialists. When it comes to freedom, that that if there are risks, I mean, there's all kinds of balances that we have to strike when we think about policy and we think about what should happen. But clearly, we know where to put the burden of proof. We know where the default position is. I mean, the default position, unfortunately, uh, on the part of taken on the part of perhaps many of my neighbors in the epicenter, downtown Manhattan is that you know, the government is right uh, and that we bear burden of proof to prove the government wrong. And then that's perhaps that position or that the epidemiologists must know because they're the scientists. And so we bear the burden of proof to prove them wrong. But clearly, hopefully, you don't have to be a libertarian to understand that the burden of proof is on 
those who would restrict these very basic freedoms, freedoms that have to do with just living our lives. And, uh, and that then when you look at all of the empirical data that, for example, that you assembled, Tom, or uh, you know, so many of the ambiguities about what has happened, then it's not a burden they can bear. And, and I say that there might be a bit pretty fat footnote when it comes to New York City, but even there, I mean, the most difficult case, even there, I think arguments can be made uh, about what really should have happened, but certainly elsewhere uh, is pretty much a no-brainer. I, I, I mean, the other phrase that I think has been not used enough is the, is the idea of herd immunity. I, I was talking to a, an old friend of mine who's actually head of endocrinology at a big hospital in New York City. He, sent, he, he sends me articles to help him with if he wants to get something published. And no, I, you know, he's objecting to the lockdown. He works, he's an endocrinologist, he's working with diabetic patients who have COVID-19. And he objects to the lockdown, although he does lockdown generally, although he's you know, not a libertarian, he sees maybe some argument for, lock, for some restrictions in New York City. But when I asked him, do you believe in herd immunity? He said, of course I believe in herd immunity. And then he's a Russian immigrant, another Jew. he's a refugee from St. Petersburg. And I guess he's got a sense of history back to Europe. He said, look, you know, why didn't everybody die during the Black Death of the 14th century? Why did it stop with about one third of the population? Because people developed herd immunity. <laughs> There's nothing else that they had at that point, really. You know, anyway, uh, so the point is, once you introduce the point about herd immunity, you throw so much ambiguity into the story that uh, there's no way for anybody on the other side to bear the burden of proof. Uh, two days, one final thing I'll say, two days after uh, you treated me to that lunch on Saturday, March 7th, I did have my final pretty crowded uh, soul forum debate on antitrust between uh, Richard Epstein and Tim Wu on antitrust. And we had a sellout crowd and nobody was wearing masks. And uh, I got some notes saying, you know, aren't, aren't you gonna feel a little bit bad about some of the people who die from this event? And, uh, you know, so I wrote back, I said, well, you know, maybe some of them are going to, maybe I'll just spread some herd immunity. And maybe that's the wild card that's been, that is the reason why uh, Japan has been a relative success story. Anyway, back to you, Tom. What's your, what's your, what's your reflection? Well, I am sending out an email yeah. this week, or I, by the time this appears, I will already have sent oh, yeah. it out about a lawyer in Florida uh -huh. who has been going to Florida beaches that have reopened, yeah. dressed as the Grim Reaper, as a way of letting everybody know, I mean, what a boomer, right? Yeah. As a way of letting everybody uh -huh. know that, of course, they're going to die mm -hmm. because they're, they're going to the beach. Yeah. Now, there's the idea that there's a, an overwhelming bundle of evidence that, that outdoor transmission is likely is uh, not so clear, but... Yeah. Be, but beyond that, I mean, just the sheer over-the-top absurdity of it. And now this uh, past Memorial Day weekend, apparently he was going around dressed as the Grim Reaper, handing out body bags at various uh, beaches. Because, yeah. of course, if you go to the beach, you're obviously going to need a body bag. Yeah. When these beaches and the rest of these states continue to open without incident, I guess a guy like this is just going to sheepishly pretend none of this ever happened and go on with his life. I mean, I don't even know what you do at that point. Yeah. Or do you say that it's because I, I spread the word and, and I handed out body bags that people changed their behavior? I mean, I, mm -hmm. I wonder what, what kind of mental gymnastics do you have to carry out? I mean, maybe this is a rhetorical question, yeah, sure. Gene. I don't yeah, even yeah. know what I'm expecting sure. of you here. No, well, no, I mean, well, indeed. Uh, the, I mean, so much of this is another uh, sort of 
old saying among us remarket types, citing Bastiat, uh, Hazlitt, you know, the evidence of things unseen, that if you want to start counting deaths, then there too we get into all kinds of ambiguities. We really don't know uh, ultimately, but we can estimate on one side and the other, even of course how many people really are dying of COVID-19. And in my own view, and there perhaps you share it, is that really we need months more worth of data to ask once we actually parse the data properly for, uh, for the fact that auto vehicle accidents are down and so on. But once we actually parse the data, how many extra deaths are we really suffering uh, just from the COVID-19? So that itself is a difficult number. But then, of course, on the other side, all of the evidence about the deaths that it's costing, and it's very possible. But uh, here, too, I want to emphasize that we really can't resolve the matter through empiricism, but it, although it is very possible that it's costing considerably more deaths than it's been saving, even at best, and the lockdown has been saving, you know, even backing off on all kinds of problems with the arguments about the lockdown. Uh, why, how, many is it, how many people has it really been saving? So we, we get into problems there, but of course, obviously, a guy with his, with his ghoulish uh, sensibility ought to think about the evidence of things unseen, about uh, all of the deaths and all of the uh, morbidity that uh, this has been causing. So uh, that, uh, that too is, is the reason why I, I think that, uh, that it's almost impossible for anybody other than those who are just completely enthralled to the government, to the actual, I guess, excitement of seeing what's been going on. And here I want to hearken back to that interview you did with uh, Thad, that is Russell, uh, in which you sort of tried to analyze why is it that the left likes, uh, left-leaning people seem to identify with what the government has been doing. And actually, I think that Mr. Russell's analogy with World War I, with the excitement of seeing all this sort of bold government action, uh, and uh, it, I, I think is part of the reason. And of course, obviously, it, it creates a, a new field for, the, for Trump and new difficulties for Trump. So if you hate Trump to the marrow of your bones, you can like it for that reason as well. Uh, but, I, I, but I guess to, to get into something somewhat contentious, um, I, I wrote an article in which I, I called uh, this, I coined my little phrase, the great suppression, rather than the great recession, the great depression. And I began by quoting uh, the late, great Murray Rothbard uh, from his uh, book on the America's Great Depression, in which he said that there are obviously cases in which the Austrian business cycle theory does not apply. And that, that was my starting point. That, uh, and in fact, of course, he talked about government misbehavior, government clampdowns, about a plague, those things that happen that, that aren't uh, uh, sort of the supply side problems that the Austrians point to. But it's a simple, in the great case of the Great Suppression, as I define it, you know, government's iron fist is imposed on capitalist acts between consenting adults. And in a way, it is sort of, uh, the image that the Keynesians have of why downturns happen, that, uh, you know, just people stop buying or this sort of, like, like just things stop, you know, and of course things stop because of the government. Uh, although, of course, I have to stipulate it would have been a, a certainly a notable slowdown, maybe even a, a, some decline in economic activity, absolutely, 
because there would have been voluntary, there were, were voluntary shutdowns and so on. But but the Iron Fist brought about something that's been pretty severe. And for that reason, I I, I believe that there is some some silver lining. Terrible to use that word in this phrase in this case, but some silver lining in that uh, in that it's reasonably obvious what has to bring it back, uh, bring the economy back. Government has to lift its iron fist. Now, obviously. When I say that, I could get into potential arguments with a whole lot of people I respect who disagree and who thinks that think that this exposed the malinvestment in the system and that uh, there's going to be a permanent problem. And we'll see, we'll see what happens. But uh, I guess um, I was on uh, I, I appeared with, uh, on, on Dave Smith's show and then uh, last week with Mark Claire on Minds of Liberty, and I said, well, you know, great to hear from you, Gene, because you you're always Mr. Optimistic. Uh, uh, that there's going to be some light at the end of this tunnel. Uh, and uh, so uh, I, we just want to file that point with you as well. Well, there's something just resilient about the market economy yeah. that we yeah. have to come yeah. to terms with. Because yeah. for a long time, people oh. were predicting something like what happened in 2008, but it yeah. took until 2008 to get it. Yeah, And in a way, it's like... It's like the environment, frankly, and I know some Greens will get upset at me for this, but I remember back and I I had a project I was thinking of working on years ago that I decided to scrap, but it was going to be a a book on war that was going to look at all the different ways in which war causes damage. So not Mm -hmm. just the obvious ones that if your house gets bombed, you know, that affects you, but there were other things. So Mm -hmm. I was going to do a chapter on war and the environment. And what I kept finding was that time after time, the problems caused fix themselves like mother nature fixed it and so i couldn't i was genuinely i wanted the answer to be devastating because that would help my thesis and every single time i found yep actually it's okay now what doggone it and i i think that kind of analogy may hold true also with the market economy that's not to say there aren't still nevertheless problems but i have had people uh mostly social media people say to me look woods you wrote a book called Meltdown about the financial crisis. You know how fragile economies like this can be. And so you have to know that the economy was full of problems and this just exposes the problems. Yeah. And I said, but are, are you really telling me that in the absence of the virus, we were on the precipice of like, a I don't know, a 10% GDP drop? Like, I mean, like you think that was just on the verge of happening anyway and it just got a little push from the virus? I'm not sure I buy that. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I, I mean, I put on a green eye shade about those numbers, um, and of course, as you were, I think, the, the first to expose in your book meltdown, and then a lot of good writing uh, followed from that. Just look at the data; you see, you see a housing bubble measured in a couple of ways easily enough. And again, you don't know when the bubble is going to burst, but. Uh, but it inevitably did. And so it was really, uh, to, to use uh, the Peter Wallison's good title for his own book on the subject, I know Peter has been, Peter Wallison has been on your show a couple of times, uh, Hidden in Plain Sight. It was uh, it was an Austrian business cycle, Hidden in Plain Sight. There was clear uh, malinvestment built up by the policies of government with Federal Reserve participating with the executive branch of, from Clinton to Bush actively participating in building up a bubble that, that anybody could have uh, recognized was uh, was happening. And clearly, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that uh, that it did happen. And I, the, only, the only debate has to do with whether it really had to bring about uh, the Great Recession. Uh, 
it might have brought about a mild downturn, as some insist, and that what what happened then was the Federal Reserve royally screwed things up and made it far worse than it had to be. Uh, but uh, but at least we know what caused it. But unfortunately, the argument is a little bit too subtle for the Keynesians. Certainly too subtle for Paul Krugman, for example, <laughs> to mention a guy you've been, uh, you and Bob have been covering for quite a while. And when I get to that, uh, I'm interesting that you guys are no longer going to do it. But let's talk about the getting Krugman for a moment. I just want to pick up a housing bubble story. So I've been tracking measures of the housing, of house, house prices to rents, house prices to, to general prices. And uh, we're nowhere near where uh, we were in uh, 05 and 06 in terms of the bubble. And you might call it a frothy, you might call it a minimum bubble, mini bubble, but nothing like that has been, uh, has happened. So, uh, so now, now looking further at the usual suspects, just taking all kinds of arguments about the stock market, but if I just take what used to be recognized as a fairly conventional uh, price to operating earnings ratio on the market, it was nowhere near uh, at its recent peak nowhere near, uh, and in terms of dividend ratio as well, nowhere near uh, the bubble measures of 98 and 99 into 2000 when that crash happened. And so those two, but then we do have a bond bubble. I readily can see we have a, we, we, de- we essentially have a, a bond bubble to some degree in corporate sector, which not by and large the main one, the main bubble really is in the government sector, the treasury sector, where we have, 17 to 18 trillion dollars worth of debt held by the public of treasury debt that that has a very low interest rate therefore the price of those bonds are way too high if the bond vigilantes start selling bonds it used to be called the bond vigilantes who start selling and therefore bring the interest rate up because they bring the price of the bonds down that could uh, be a problem that that could be a bursting bubble but there uh, there here perhaps I'm, I'm most criticized i believe that that the government's going to lead a charmed life, continue to lead a charmed life, because the U.S. treasuries are still conceived of as a safe haven. Uh, you would look at the U.S. and you say, as compared to what other countries are doing even worse. Uh, and so I think that this has been a disastrous certain, uh, policy pursued by the Fed and by the Treasury, trillions of dollars of extra debt. But to my mind, the most significant figure um, of all is that the congressional budget always projected that 11 years from now, the uh, U.S. Treasury debt as a percentage of GDP was going to be above 100% of GDP. I'm, by the way, I'm using publicly held debt, which I think is the, is the better wonkish figure, not the complete intergovernmental debt. Conservative figure, publicly held debt, uh, debt held by the public, uh, Treasury debt. They, they projected that in 11 years, it would be above 100%. The, the CBO is now projecting that it's happening this, in the coming year. So we've pushed a day of reckoning on the debt 11 years forward. And that, I think, augurs very badly for the long run. But I don't think that it means that we're going to have a bursting debt bubble in the near term. Uh, and I don't see, I mean, of course, we always have malinvestment here and there, but I don't see a major bubble. So therefore, I don't see a precedent for 2008 or 2000 or the year 2000. And therefore, I think that it is indeed the Rothbardian uh, 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 situation uh, of a government act 
and always he said pestilence or king. I forget he mentioned a king doing something to uh, to wreck the economy. Something that a government does, and the only thing the government has to do now is lift the lockdown. With that said, obviously there's a, it's awful carnage. Many small businesses have been wrecked. There's all, all kinds of questions about how other businesses will come back. But I believe that we're already beginning to see the, the U.S. economy is going to begin to climb back. And sometime next year, perhaps, the, you know, it's going to start to recover quite slowly. It won't be a V-shaped recovery, in my view. Obviously, the V-shaped recovery being a sudden plunge and, a sudden, and then a sudden rebound, it's going to be a slow recovery. But I believe that by the second quarter of next year, the uh, GDP is going to be back where it was in the fourth quarter of last year. And so I'm sticking my neck out, and I know others are as well, like Peter Schiff. Uh, and uh, we'll see who turns out to be right. Let me ask you about a possible bit of uncertainty that, and how we, f- how we factor that in. There's, from now on, going to be a cloud of uncertainty over all businesses. That yeah. The state could simply, at a moment's notice, shut you down. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to say that in the rest during the rest of my lifetime, this will never happen again. I hope that's the case. No. But none of us, when you and I were having that lunch no. just a couple of months ago, it never occurred to us that they would try something like this and that so many people would sheepishly go along with it. Now that they've got this this view that the primary goal of society must be preventing deaths from this virus. Now, it's not even clear that the strategy they're following has that result. Yeah. But even if it were, there are other things we want to accomplish as a yeah. society, and there are other dangers we want to protect against. Who says their priority has to be everybody's? Yeah. But you could easily see them in the future saying, well, now there's another threat, and it may not be as big as this one, but we still need to shut everybody down. Doesn't that affect people's willingness to open businesses in the first place, to expand their businesses? Because they could be left holding the bag. My framework is that is that the, the baseline measured conventionally, I know all kinds of problems with the conventional measures that people are right to object to, but measured conventionally, a real GDP should be increasing at 7% a year. And uh, that, uh, so I'm just going to start with that. And that means that we get a doubling of output every 10 years, you know, 7% a year means a doubling every decade. And that's really the baseline. That's what the U.S. economy is capable of. So what do we had? What did we have in the in the, the nineties? We had four percent a year uh, in the uh, over the last uh, in this recent uh, expansion that ended in the fourth quarter of last year. We had a little better than two percent a year, and so I think that uh, probably. So I, I, that's my long-winded way of, of saying, Tom, that I would imagine. And why did we have two percent? Well, we had two percent because of of the subtle measure of of economic freedom. It peaked in the year 2000, and most years it declined. Surprisingly, inched up a little bit under Obama, but still notably below where it was in its peak in 2000. And so that's where it takes its toll. And so, uh, so I'll, uh, I'll say wonkishly, yeah, well, you're right, Tom. That, that's probably worth about a, a taking off another third of a percentage point from GDP growth. And so maybe we'll maybe we'll trundle along at one and a half percent. And uh, nobody will quite ever figure it out, although, although actually it will probably be reflected if you actually unwind, look at some of the, all this, the subtle measures that the uh, Fraser slash Cato Institute uses for economic freedom. It will probably be reflected in some of the quantitative polls like the rule of law, property rights, that sort of thing. And we'll probably begin to see it in the economic freedom index. So I think it's going to also cost us. Um, and uh, just like, again, uh, that wonderful economy under, under Trump, under Bush and under Trump and under Obama that we really saw 
economic growth that was pretty pathetic compared to the enormous energy, enormous entrepreneurial potential of the U.S. economy. Uh, but of course, uh, I, uh, you know, I'd like to promote, you know, I, I bought about a year ago, I'd like to promote this book of predictions uh, from the 19, late 1970s, I think, that was uh, published by uh, David Walashans, Walashinsky and his father, Irving Wallace, and they polled people on their predictions. I think it was the early 80s. And Murray Rothbard was asked to make his prediction. He thought things were going to get uh, rapidly worse into the 80s. But then, you know, he did his typical, so the typical sort of Hegelian dialectic analysis you do that people are going to get fed up and there will be a, uh, a bad, bad times by the 80s into the early 90s or mid-90s, and then there'll be a rebound. So you and I know that that human cussedness and, uh, and, and human action is so unpredictable. And now, because I'm going to lean back in and betray myself as an optimist once again, I think that once the dust settles and we do some agonizing reappraisals with some decent data on what really happened in terms of the lockdown and how many extra deaths we really suffered, with the COVID-19 epidemic. And once a careful look is made at the deaths that it caused, um, a whole lot of lists of deaths that it caused, you, you've mentioned that frequently. And then once we consider the anger and frustration that people have gone through uh, from this dreadful experience, hopefully uh, there will be a backlash and reaction against uh, government trying to do this again. So uh, there too, uh, I think we have some reason to hope, and uh, just want to make sure I get in that, sorry to hear that you shut down, uh, shutting down the, the great and glorious recruitment, Tom, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, after you're doing your 225th episode is going to be your last one, and uh, congratulations on a great job, by the way. Thank <laughs> and, you, uh, thank you. And, and also, uh, yeah, my nostalgia for it, it was not just great insights, I, you know, when, when I, I met with you, I, I first spent a while with you, because we encountered each other that time initially when we were debating the Federal Reserve together, and we didn't know each other. And I took pleasure, as I often do, in surprising people because at that point I had the establishment, you know, suit on that I was economics and books, books editor at a relatively mainstream publication, Barron's, even though it did have a libertarian tradition that people didn't know sufficiently about. And you were rather pleasantly shocked that I sounded like such a firebrand. Yeah, that's and then, right. And, we, <laughs> and, uh, and then we, so we, uh, you know, we spent some time then, but then I, then I met you and you came around to my office. Uh, and you told me you were launching the kind of country Krugman. And I thought, oh my God, I, I did, I had done a book called The Kind of Meaning about Krugman. And I thought, oh my God, let, you know, how, how much can we say about Krugman? But you guys proved that through, through 224 episodes and now one final one. A, a great deal of good uh, economic lessons can be extracted from uh, analyzing Krugman. And of course, it always it saved me the, uh, the effort of having to read him. And, uh, you know, I had to read him. When I was columnist at Barron's, but and of course I read him extensively when I was doing my book Econo Spinning. I did a few chapters on him because because if you're talking about how the media spins economics, how could you not do Krugman as I did in my book Econo Spinning? But um, you guys have done a great job. And my my odd uh, suggestion from left from left field is I wish somebody could listen to the episodes and call all the great insults that you guys lob at each other. That could be a good sort of retrospective. Uh, on, because you guys, you guys developed a great comedy act, you know, out of that as well. That was, that was another great achievement. 
which which always amused me because it was economic analysis laced with the sort of great jokes. You know, <laughs> you, it, it was a, it was it was a conventional comedy routine. But as I I asked Bob Murphy, do you think you guys could do a, a comedy act without the substance? Probably not, and that's why you just asked. yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, okay. Let me just say a quick thing because this sure. may be the first time some people are hearing that we're yeah. deciding oh to God. discontinue Contra Crew because they may not have heard episode two twenty four. Oh, I apologize. No, that's perfectly okay. <laughs> I mean, at some point they have to learn that's no Santa. You know, like at some point you have to tell them. <laughs> So let me just say the reason we've decided to uh, discontinue it is that yeah. at the time we started, which was all the way back in 2015, there was no Bob Murphy show. You know, there was no yeah. um, Laura Murphy report. I mean, Bob's mm-hmm. doing three podcasts at this point. This is ridiculous. Yeah. So, and then once we started doing Contra Krugman, Bob became very scarce on the Tom Woods show. Yeah. So now we're just going to go back to the status quo antebellum. You know, we're going to mm-hmm. go back to ante, status quo anti-Contra Krugman. And, and have Bob just be a guest on my show more often. Uh, there are some things that just run their natural life cycle. Not everything is destined to last forever. And we just decided that with our schedules and, and stuff that this was something we wanted to not do anymore. And that's, you know, yeah. that, that's, that's that. Well, yes, and it, it was. It, it's not the roundest of numbers, but it's going to be your 220. It's a perfect episode. square. Yeah. <laughs> right? I said that to Bob. I said, now, I hope that makes you feel better. I'm speaking your language here. It's 15 square. Well, what, 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 I, what I like, as I say, what amused me, though, is that without even thinking about it, you guys developed a, a great form of insult comedy. And Oh, we did. And one of my favorite things, by the way, this wasn't so much of an insult, but toward the end of the episode, I'd always yeah. be wrapping it up, and Bob would always interject. Yeah, yeah, Tom, yeah. can I just say two more things? Yeah. Like, it would oh, always yeah. be at the end. Yeah. So somebody suggested in my yeah. elite group what if you had an episode where Bob says, Tom, can I just say two more things? And Tom just says, no. And then the closing music comes on. <laughs> That's it. Just shuts yeah. him down completely. So we did that one episode. <laughs> we, we did. I, Tom, I was, I'm a faithful, I was a faithful listener to Contra Group and I always look forward to it. And sometimes myth was delayed. And uh, yeah, I remember that very well, Tom. I was, I was shocked. I had to, I had to ask myself, uh, did he really do it intentionally? My God. Yeah, I know. She's what a jerk, this guy. What are these guys going to do? Take a gun out and, and pretend you know, the insult is getting to be too much. And then I realized, of course, you realize, oh, it was a setup. You know? So fair enough. That was a great moment. No, I mean, of course, that was the ultimate insult. You know, no. <laughs> that was perfect. Uh, anyway, really good. But you know, I, I want to you know I want to return. I, I have a couple of notes here. I thought I'd mention. Oh, oh wait, right. are you saying you have two more points before we end this yeah, episode? Yeah, oh my God, you're going to do something to me. <laughs> but no, I want to mention. You know that that interestingly, New York City produces these ethnic breakdowns of deaths and incidents, and deaths and incidents, and uh, of course, it shows African Americans and Hispanics are the highest. But then it, then it has whites and Asians, and the Asians are the lowest, lower than whites. And because, once again, another ambiguity, because even though the Asians, to some extent, are my wife, Pisako, Japanese uh, residents of New York City, and of course, Koreans as well, but still, it's overwhelmingly poor Chinese. And uh, poor Chinese who are, in the, who are living in cramped residences, you know. And so, again, you know, the, the ambiguities abound. You know, the New York Times actually had a pretty good piece on this, and I kept commended every, whenever it does produce something worthwhile, definitely want to want to highlight it, just like you guys would always try to applaud if, if Krugman ever said something smart, which occasionally he did. And, uh, and then, oh, that's right, and then I want to pick a bone with you, Tom, you know, back to your view that, that occasionally I nitpick. I want to start it this way. 
there uh, was, for example, research showing that the uh, U.S. Uh, manufacturing sector had lost something like 2.3 million or 2.2 million jobs to China. Uh, another statistic that had been bandied about by the anti-free trade people like the Dobbs, you know, like over 2 million jobs, 3 million jobs lost. And I, at that point, uh, said that that's the reason why I hate it. Uh, I think it's unfortunate that whenever uh, the media reports an increase in the number of jobs, it talks about jobs being created, that there were like 200,000 jobs created last month or two and a half million jobs created over the course of a year. And my point was that that if we keep talking about how that was that were the jobs that were actually created, then when we get a figure like nearly two and a half million jobs taken by the Chinese, then that gives the impression that a whole year's worth of created jobs that, that the US economy creates were taken by the Chinese. And so it, it's a much, now, what was my point? My point was that uh, since the year 2000, I think actually the late 90s, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has been tracking jobs lost, jobs, uh, jobs that are destroyed. And basically, of course, for two different reasons, you know, downsizing, the, the two main reasons, the business downsizing and, uh, and of course, business bankruptcies. Uh, and uh, so that's jobs, jobs destroyed. And even in good times, uh, nearly a million jobs are destroyed every month in the U.S. economy. And so when, 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 uh, the, when the media reported that 200,000 job, 200, jobs were created, what they really should have reported was that 1.2 million jobs were created, a million jobs were destroyed, and there was a net increase of 200,000. And uh, so that's, that's the creative destruction of the U.S. economy. And so, uh, in fact, I was campaigning for so long about this that I did begin to see a reaction. And now on Twitter, I correct a couple of journalists who still use the jobs, the word create, jobs were created rather than just reporting that the number of jobs rose by that amount. And uh, so uh, so my nitpick was when you had uh, David Stockman on, um, you guys constantly said that, that there were 20 million jobs created since the year 2000 in the U.S. economy. And that was just, you know, that and that was what we lost. So I, I, I really, what has mm. happened? I don't know if I accept this one. Geez. Oh my God. <laughs> Look, again, if you, okay, Tom, I, I guess I've spoken my piece. My point is that, that, that you shock that, that, that when, when they bandied about the 2.3 million number, China's taken practically a year's worth of jobs that we create. You know, the, the fact is that, that I said, no, China's taken, China's taken uh, uh, the equivalent of, of 10 weeks worth of job losses in the U.S. economy. I mean, the, the drama of, of actually what actually goes on, that I'm, that I'm going to put it another way. Do you know, it, it, it's in a good week, a good week, that's when the economy is doing well, that a quarter of a million people file for unemployment insurance claims. Every week, that's when the economy is doing well. So that figure alone shows you what incredible job creation and job destruction goes on in the U.S. economy all the time. And so, and as I say, when you say that the U.S. economy only managed to create 20 million jobs, no. The U.S. economy destroyed tens of millions of jobs and created many more. 
But okay, if I haven't convinced you, Tom, at least your listeners no, are getting my side of the argument. No, that's okay. No, I, I guess I see where you're coming from. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I hear okay, you. Okay, okay. So I've spoken my piece, and I'll shut up now about that. And let me see. If, well, uh, let me just commend you. Also, something else that really caught me is that, is that I highly recommend uh, your book, I, I, uh, the book uh, about uh, your Facebook friends are wrong about the lockdown. Uh, a lot of good stuff, but I was surprised I hadn't seen Jeff Dice. Uh, chapter at the end, which is just interesting, a very thoughtful, uh, you know, sort of, I have to say, wonkish plan for the governors and uh, to get together and to uh, to climb out of this mess. And it just struck me how thoughtful it is and how readable. And that, you know, it's like, the, you know, what what is one thing that Jeff Dice is bringing to the Mises Institute? You, you guys were supposed to be in the Mises Institute, at least, was supposed to be sort of the abstract, you know, high concept uh, think tank when the Wonka stuff was left to Cato and others, but this is the most thoughtful piece I've received. I've seen that sort of out wonks the wonks and and is again thoughtful and readable. Uh, also, I think it, it strikes a note that uh, come to think of it that I also want to emphasize, which is that when we libertarians slash Austrians talk about what has to happen, we are not ignoring the zero regression principle. We are not, as I like to call it, because I was inspired by the interview you did with a guy named Gerald Casey, the Irish philosopher, whose books I've, I've since been reading. He prefers to call it the zero aggression principle rather than the non-aggression principle, which I think is a nicer word, the zap. Um, but uh, when uh, Jeff, for example, talks about uh, about uh, premises liability, I mean, he recognizes that the situation is certainly complicated enough so that in certain circumstances, Somebody who has a communicable disease is, in fact, potentially committing uh, aggression against you. And so it, that, that is also true, and I think that it's important for us libertarians not to deny it, that it is an issue and that it is part of what goes on. And, of course, obviously, in a purely uh, sort of ANCAP society or in a, or in a minicist libertarian society, there will be all kinds of different kinds of quarantines, clearly people get a little freaked out, they would close their premises, that buildings would close to visitors. Those voluntary actions could happen if people are fearful or if people think that they need to take uh, extra precaution. But, uh, but uh, again, be, if, if we let 100 flowers bloom, if we allow people on an individual and organizational and firm level to make up their own minds about what to do, then the good will probably dominate. The better ideas will begin to crowd out the worst ideas because they will be proven. And that, of course, is obviously the best way to go. And again, to emphasize, the default position is freedom. The default position is recognizing that if government is going to impose its honor and fist on us via the Great Suppression, it bears a very heavy burden of proof, which given all that has been going on, especially given the potential for herd immunity, which may be the only thing that will really make a difference, especially given all that, then uh, the lockdown, the Great Suppression was really never justified. Well, with that, we're going to say goodbye to Gene uh, yeah. for today. Well, that sounds a little bit morbid. I don't... <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, then, well, I'm planning... I, and then, uh, oh, yeah, and then, of course, my little uh, uh, advertisement for the cell phone. We are continuing to plan some debates on, uh, on um, online. We had two via Zoom. Uh, we still want to operate. We are working... Very hard 
uh, on uh, you, you know that's the one thing you've been polite enough not to not to hector me about because because of course what everybody wants to know is when is that when is that Dem Scott Horton Bill Crystal debate going to happen and we're working on potentially having it in another city and uh, we may have an announcement about that soon and because uh, we've been in talks with uh, some place in another city I can't mention and. Uh, I know a lot of locals are going to be disappointed, but of course we did have an awful lot of people who were coming in from far distances, and hopefully it won't be terrible for them to just buy a ticket to that particular city, because we definitely want to have that one in a physical space. Uh, and we're working hard with the people at Subculture Theater, where we uh, we, we normally had our debates, I, I, uh, and uh, uh, they do want to reopen, and uh, they're going to go to great efforts to try to do so. So I hope in the near future, I'll still be offering people that free drink of the, of the bar if you say the words Tom Woods to me. Well, we are looking forward to that event uh, very much. And I'd love to see an online debate. Uh, if you could you could get Alex Berenson on there uh, and yeah. put, put him up against somebody who's comparable, I mean, maybe not against yeah. an MD, although he'd probably do it. Uh-huh. But but he's been really good on uh, on Twitter. He won't I mean, he gets a lot of emails. He won't seem to come on my show because I think he's still he's still too mainstream and doesn't want to be... I mean, I've had plenty of mainstream people on here, but I think he doesn't want to be demonized any more than he already has. I don't know. I can't oh, really? speculate. That's interesting, because, yeah, you know, I get happy with those so far. Well, uh, well I, actually, of course, uh, we, we've opened up a... We have an inner... Uh, we have a, a so far inner circle Facebook, but, of course, people are free to, to send me ideas, and I'm grateful uh, for them all. Thanks for that idea, Tom, and please... Uh, email me anytime if you have any other bright ideas uh, for debates. You know, and obviously the ideal proposal is, you know, this person against that person on this resolution. But I'm still grateful for saying, you know, Alex Barrison on a particular on that particular issue versus somebody else, yeah. and uh, all that's useful. Well, I'll just say this because yeah. I had no idea the world was going to end, and yeah. and and you have been t- asking me for a long time what I do yeah. a debate, yeah. and then we had something sort of planned, but it's very time sensitive, and I, I'd rather do an in person debate. But if and when this gets restored, yeah. let's figure out something I can debate because I mean it. Now th- I took everything for granted. I didn't realize I was going to lose everything. So yeah, mm-hmm. I want to embrace life once again, and embracing life means doing a debate at the Soho Forum. Well, that's right, Tom, and especially I mean, look, that, that was music to my ears, and uh, and I know you're you're still good for that, and uh, and I would want you back, and especially since now you're uh, you know you're one for two uh, in terms of debates that I've that I've supervised. You you beat Michael Malice, and you lost to Murphy, and uh, so uh, you know you want to be uh, you know hopefully. Uh, do a little better next time, which I think is great. <laughs> and that was a, a great time that we had. You uh, back, of course, the time when um, uh, when you debated Michael Malice, especially uh, the crowd. Uh, my God, just to get, again to get nostalgic for the days when we didn't obey social distancing. I went out to dinner with you and Michael, and that, I think that was the night I introduced you to Dave Smith. I think it was the first time he showed up. I invited him so that you could meet Dave. Back, way back when, and then we moseyed over to the place, and usually it was like would be like you know people would start moseying in, but the, the place was absolutely mobbed with people. And I guess you think was it was it Malice's fans, Tom, or was it yours? I never asked you. You know, was, I guess they all had their knives sharpened for you, Tom. That the people showed up for Malice. Anyway, it was an enormous crowd of people. We broke the fire laws, but hopefully not uh, severely. The exits were not bad, and. So it was a very lively debate, 
And uh, hopefully we can do something like that again. And I'm going to take you up on that offer, Tom. You're going to be coming back to the Soul Forum as a debater sooner or later. Well, if anybody is interested in seeing the footage of me losing a debate to, <laughs> I mean, to my eternal shape, to of all people, Bob Murphy. Now, I know you're going to jump in and defend him. It's only a joke. Gene. It's only a joke. Yeah. You can do that if you join my supporting listeners group. That's oh, one yes. of the benefits. From the silver level on up, you get access uh-huh. to that video. So yeah. uh, that's supportinglisteners.com. You should all be joining that because the private Facebook group helps keep you sane during these difficult times. All right, Definitely I does. said I was going to let you go like half an hour okay. ago. So sure. now we're really going to do okay. it. Thanks a lot, Gene. Sure. And, and let me just say to the listening audience that the ebook Gene is talking about is your Facebook friends are wrong about the lockdown. You can pick it up for free at wrongaboutlockdown.com and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.